Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to everybody who's visiting here from out of town. Appreciate you being here. And all of those watching online, thank you for tuning in. We are continuing our study on Revelation, going verse by verse. We're in the second seal after Jesus has taken the scroll. So we are going to start to unpack the red horse today and as I started going through this message and putting it all together, Ryan mentioned we've got fewer slides this morning. It's really because I cut it in half, and we're going to do two messages on this one seal. So it's going to work out great, actually, because after service, we're going to cut the live feed and do some prayer and take communion. So uh, thank you, Amy Woolsey, for baking it and making it and bringing it, and appreciate that. So we're going to do communion as a fellowship together today after this. So sit tight. Afterwards, we'll pray and read 1 Corinthians 11 a little bit and then talk about communion. But to get started, we're going to get into the the second seal here. And I'll explain to you why this will be two messages as, as we go through this. Okay, but you're going to have some homework between the end of today and the start of next week to prepare for next Sunday. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. So we're going through these three sets of judgments. Okay, remember Christ has taken the scroll. Only the lamb can take the scroll. So just as a reminder, we are, we've gone through the unveiling of who Jesus is in chapter 1. Who is he really as our king and our savior? And there are 24 identifying characteristics of our king in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3 were these seven letters to the seven churches And one identifying characteristic of Jesus was taken from chapter 1 and used in each of those seven letters. And if you remember, those seven letters laid out the church history in advance. So chapters 2 and 3, those are the chapters that are most important for us today as the church. You want to make sure you master chapters 2 and 3 because it's all about us and the church and what's our responsibility in all of this right now before the church age closes Chapters 4 and 5 were, chapter 4, verse 1 was the rapture, come up here, and we broke that down in a lot of detail all over the scripture. And then chapter 4 and chapter 5 is the throne room of the universe, where we see Jesus as the lamb that was slain coming forward to take the scroll. What nobody in this room, nobody in heaven, on earth, or under the earth could redeem for us, for mankind. It had to be a king. It had to be the kinsman redeemer, Jesus himself. So he comes forward, he takes the scroll, and notice the church is there before he takes it, and then he starts to loose it, loose the seals thereof, of redemption, redeeming the world. It's the title deed to the earth, and it's the terms and conditions of what it takes for us to reign and rule with Christ on the earth. And so we went through seal one last time, the, uh, the rise of the Antichrist, the coming forward of that false Messiah who brings a false peace on the world. And from chapter 6, verse 1, 
until the end of chapter 16. We're going to go through these three sets of seven judgments where Jesus is redeeming the earth on our behalf so that we can rule and reign with him. And it's during this time he's also with a sword making a dividing line saying, it's time for you in the world to make a decision one way or the other. You are either for Jesus or you are against Jesus. There is no more a gray area on earth at this time. It is a decision point. It's a deciding factor. There's no more living comfortably for the Lord. The church has been removed, and he's deciding those left on the earth, hey, make a decision. You're either for me or against me because I'm coming back to rule and to reign, and if you are against me, you cannot be here. That's the bottom line. And so we went through the, the first seal last week. This week for the second seal will be two messages today and then next Sunday. And then when you go through the seals and the scroll, remember there's a, a break in these three judgments between the sixth and the seventh of each of them. So you have the seven seals. There's a break between the sixth and the seventh, and it's an entire chapter. It's chapter seven in Revelation. But the seventh seal opens up the next one down, seven trumpets. That's why we call it a heptatic structure. Heptatic is a Jewish term for meaning seven. It's the whole book is revolved and crafted around sevens. And seven, as we know, is it's not just the number of completion. It's the number that is complete on what God does on behalf of man. And so it's something that always involves the Lord working in man's life somehow. So the seven trumpets open up. And when you go through those, there's a break between the sixth and the seventh. That's actually four chapters, 10 through 14. So there's a big break there where we look at a lot of other things that are going on. There's the two witnesses, the overview of the entire Bible, the mark of the beast. There's all those things are described in those four chapters. Then the seventh trumpet opens up the seven bowls. And this time the break is only one verse. In chapter 16, verse 15, it's Jesus. It's Jesus's words. If you have a King James Bible, it'll be red letters. Chapter 16, verse 15, it's one verse that's a break between the sixth and the seventh bowl. So just as a reminder of where we are, the second seal. Okay, so the two verses today, verses three and four. And when he had opened the second seal, the he is Jesus, the lamb. Remember, he's taken the scroll and he's working his way down. So when he opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. Now remember, Around the throne room of the universe, there's the four living creatures. The word beast here, it really means living creature. It's not to be confused with the beast in chapter 13, which is the Antichrist. Okay, that's a different word in the Greek. This is one of the four living creatures that we looked at surrounding the throne of God. So the second one says, come and see, or proceed, come forward. Remember, John has taken each one of these. He's taken. It's not just that the Lord gives him a dream. It's not a vision. He goes physically there and sees this. And so verse 4, And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that set thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So remember, Jesus is opening the seals. Jesus is releasing and allowing these things to happen. Okay, he alone has the authority. So as we go through this and it gets heavier on the earth, don't forget who's in charge. 
He always sets the battle lines. This is not the enemy running free. This is not Satan doing what he wills. This is Satan fulfilling what God wills. He is in charge. He's got the authority. He's allowing this to happen. He's giving certain freedoms to the enemy to go forward so that Jesus can redeem the earth. He was the only one who could take the scroll, and it's under his command. He's in complete control the entire time, and he always has been. Again, think back to Job chapter 1. When Satan and the fallen angels come to God, he gives them certain authority over Job. He gives them certain, he allows them to do certain things in his life. And it is to chasten Job and to, and to refine him and shape him to teach him a lesson in pride and get him to be more like our king. He's in complete control the entire time. And John proceeds onward here in the second seal. So a red horse. Red, if you study this in the scripture, red is always associated with terror and death in a lot of ways. And the red dragon in chapter 12, it represents Satan. So red, and we, that's confirmed in Revelation 12, 9. The red beast in Revelation 7, 17, 3 represents the final world dictator and its system. So the beast system that's in place at that time. Now, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. And we looked at this back at the opening, the introduction to the seals, but, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. And so remember, he goes through, Jesus goes through this exact same order as these, as these first four seals. There's uh, there's wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, and then earthquake, earthquakes. And before this, he talks about the false Christ. So he gives the same list of signs as Revelation 6 in the first four seals. Now, his instructions here to be not troubled are for the Jewish believing remnant that will be left behind during this time, that accept him, that realize, okay, we totally blew it, we missed it, Lord, we are sorry, and they come to know the Lord, and, and the whole discourse in Matthew 24 is almost like a survival guide for the Jewish people to flee and get into the Rock City Petra and to survive this seven-year period, the tribulation, specifically the back half, because um, he goes on and talks about those that be in Judea, do this, do this. Our instructions are in Luke 21, and we looked at that, if you remember he gives the same list of signs, but he says, when you see these things begin to pass, look up, your redemption draws nigh. In other words, as you see the stage setting of this, look up, you're coming home. And so just keep that in mind as we go through this. Okay, it's interesting that red shows up throughout Israel's history. Remember, this is the time of Jacob's trouble, according to Jeremiah. This is not the time of the church's trouble. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. We will not be here. But it's interesting that red shows up throughout Israel's history. Remember, it starts in the womb with Jacob and Esau. Remember, Esau was red in Genesis 25, 25. Jacob fought Esau in the womb, and Esau was red. And you can look that up in Genesis 25. God turns Egypt's water to blood, red, in Exodus 7, 20. God delivers Israel through the Red Sea in Exodus 15. The tabernacle itself 
is covered in dyed red animal skins in Exodus 35 and 36. Now, when you study that, it's interesting because every detail of the tabernacle speaks of Jesus. If you remember, Jesus lays claim to every article in the tabernacle in the Gospel of John. He makes seven I am statements. He says, I am the door. In the tabernacle, there was one way in. I am the living water, and once you got in, you had the brazen altar, the living water you had to wash yourself with. Then when you got further in, he said, I am the bread of life, and there was a table of showbread, right, for one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. I am the light of the world. There was a seven-branch menorah, the candlestick, within the tabernacle. So the whole tabernacle's architecture speaks of Jesus. And this one specifically, the red animal skins on the outside, when you would look at it, it had no form or comeliness that you wanted to go into the tabernacle. It looked nasty. It looked like, wow, that's a gross camp tent that I want nothing to do with. But it wasn't until you got inside of it that you saw the beauty, right? The gold, the ornaments, the curtains that were in purple and scarlet and blue twine and the cherubim and the palm branches and all this beauty that the Lord had once you got inside that relationship. But that's exactly what Isaiah speaks about with Jesus, right? He shall have no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. It's the same thing. And so the animal skins, that whole thing with the tabernacle, it was a blueprint of the heavenly reality as we learn in Hebrews. Moses not only got the Ten Commandments, he got the architecture blueprints for the tabernacle on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai. So when he comes down, it's, it's all speaking of Jesus. Uh, furthermore, in the red, Solomon made warships for navy on the Red Sea in 1 Kings 9.26. And so you see this continuously, how God fights for Israel when red shows up. It's just interesting that this theme of red is throughout the scripture Okay, furthermore, Jesus wars against sin and turns it from red to white. That's in Isaiah 118. Remember, every single week when we do an altar call, we give this verse. Though your sins be like crimson, they shall be white as snow. So they're only white because Jesus warred for them to become white. Let's not forget that. Jesus is drenched red with his enemy's blood at the very end in Revelation 19. And we see this in Isaiah 63. This is one of my favorite discourses between Jesus and Israel, almost maybe in the entire Bible. So next week, one of the things we're going to look at is the Armageddon campaign, what happens in that battle, in the war that, that culminates the very end of that seven-year period. But in Isaiah 63, this is Israel. At this point, Israel has fled to Basra, to the rock city Petra. Jesus returns, and we are with him. He wipes out his enemies, and remember, his white garment is drenched in the blood of his enemies. And he then goes down to the rock city Petra in Edom, or I'm sorry, in Basra, to find the children of Israel and to pull them out, those that have been nourished and kept there for the back half of the tribulation, what Jesus calls the great tribulation. And so this is the discourse. It's dialogued in Isaiah 63, the first six verses. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in right, so this is Jesus speaking now. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then Israel, 
Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? And remember, when you get to this point in Revelation, God uses an idiom a lot of treading the wine press. Because what they would do when they would make grapes and they would stomp on them, the grapes would splatter up and dye their garments. So same, same kind of idiom here, the, the imagery. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there were none with me. For I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Now why? Because they've made the choice. They are against him, and it's time for him to set up the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And so he is going to save Israel. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is to come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. In the Old Testament, when you read about the arm of the Lord, read it carefully because most of the time it speaks of Jesus. When you read about the arm of the Lord, you know, he is God incarnate in the flesh. Okay, and my fury it upheld me, and I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I'll bring down their strength to the earth. So this whole discourse between Jesus showing up to rescue the children of Israel. Okay, he wipes out the enemies. They're encamped around Jerusalem. He wipes them out. He goes down through Jordan, okay, through Jordan to the rock city Petra. It's interesting in Daniel, Jordan is one of the only nations on earth that does not fall under the reign and the rule of the Antichrist. And there's a reason, and the reason is because it gives a passage for Israel to get to safety, to be preserved during that time. Okay, so, and then, you know, when you read these verses, I've often, when we come back with the Lord, I, as a young man growing up, I always wanted to fight with him, right? And just, let me just, let us go to battle for a little bit, but he clearly doesn't need our help, and so we get to just sit by and watch and watch the word of God wipe out his enemies. It's going to be pretty amazing. In Psalm 75, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same, but the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. In other words, his fury is red, and all of the enemies of the earth are going to drink from his cup. And, and when we get to Mystery Babylon, she's drinking a cup that she thinks is well, she thinks that it's the blood of the martyrs, but really it's going to be a cup of God and his fury. So, interesting. Okay, again, notice that power is given to him on the red horse. Okay, look at the middle part of verse 4. And power was given to him. Okay, so the authority is given. The power is given to the enemy here. This is not power that he takes by his own might. He has no power, the enemy has no power in your life or in mine other than that which the Lord allows. If you are in him, you are not susceptible to random attacks by the enemy. The Lord only allows what happens in his children's lives, and that's exactly what Hebrews says. Uh, be thankful if you are chastened because that means you're a legitimate son, right? He may be trying to weed something out of your life. And notice this guy on the red horse, he takes peace from the earth. He takes peace. So he, the implication is that he's making war because at the very end there was given unto him a great sword, but all he does is take peace from the earth. And who's the prince of peace? Jesus. 
right, and where he is not, when you remove Jesus from any situation, then war ensues because there is no peace there. If you just remove peace, you remove the presence of Jesus, then man is left to their own devices, and we know that they're, they're wicked, wicked devices. So the peace he's taking was the peace in Daniel 8.25. So the Antichrist comes forward. Remember, we looked at this last week, and through his policy, also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. So by peace, he, he rises as a peacemaker, but by peace, he ultimately destroys many. And he's broken without hand, meaning that rock that is cut without hands from Daniel chapter 2 that shatters his kingdom, the mountain, and then becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth, which is the millennial kingdom. So you've got peace taken from the earth. At the very end, and there was a given unto him a great sword. The word sword here is machaira. And you can kind of find this throughout the, the whole Bible of this type of sword. It first shows up in Genesis 3. Remember when Adam and Eve fall, God removes them from the garden, and he guards the way to the tree of life with a cherub, with two cherubs, actually. Cherubim is plural, cherubim, that have a machaira or a great sword. So they're guarding the way, and the reason why they're guarding the way is so that Adam and Eve in their fallen state could not get to the tree of life to be immortal, immortally forever in that state, right? God is providing a protection there for the human line, which ultimately leads to the Messiah, Jesus coming forward and giving us eternal life. And then access to that tree will be granted again in Revelation towards the very end, 21 and 22. So the war of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38, if, if any of you have studied prophecy, you've probably read this, these chapters your whole life. Uh, it, it details out a lot, and we're going to look at it in great detail next week. But there's a sword given in verse 21, this Machira. God's sword and fury shows up in Jeremiah 25. Jesus rids the world of them in the millennium. So he rids the world of the Machira in the millennium. Okay, in Micah 4.3, And he shall judge among many people... This is a verse about the millennium, that he is Jesus and rebukes strong nations afar off, meaning when he sets his throne in Jerusalem, he will rebuke nations far off, meaning overseas. He's going to judge and rule the earth from Jerusalem. And they, meaning the people he's judging and rebuking, shall beat their swords or machiras into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. See, there's no more war in the millennium because there's a righteous king ruling. There's peace on earth. Remember in the seal, peace is taken from the earth, so wars ensue. Well, when the prince of peace fills the earth, the wars cease. And I love how the UN uses this verse on their outside of their building, but they take out basically the front half, that he shall judge among the nations. If you, st if you look at it closely, they use from the semicolon, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They leave off the first half because they want the millennium, they want the peace without the prince of peace, right? They try to usher in a world order, a world government without the king, 
who can only alone usher that in. So it's interesting. Be, care- be sensitive to that. A lot of the world twists the scripture into something, a false piece that they're trying to do. So the red horse, you know, it only shows up one other place in the Bible that I can find. And it's, it's in Zechariah verses 7 through 11. And the whole book of Zechariah is very interesting, but he has these night visions that all happen in one night. It all happens in one night. He has these series of eight visions. And the first one he has is this. Upon the 4 and 20th day of the 11th month. Now, a lot of prophets prophesy on the 4 and 20th day, the 24th day of the month. And I still have not figured out why that date, but I am searching. So maybe one of you can find why is it always the 24th of the month, which is the month Sabbat. In the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, the son of Edu, the prophet, saying, I saw by night and behold a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees, and there were in the bottom and behind him were there red horses, speckled and white. So you have these other horses of the seals we see in chapter 6 that are with this red one. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent. Notice who sends them. The Lord sent them. They didn't go on their own. They didn't have free reign to go and do something. The Lord sent them, ushered them out. The Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. Okay? And they answered, and the the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. And so even, even the order, remember the first seal is the white horse, and there's a false peace over all of the earth. Well, look what the red one says. The red one starts going around the earth and realizes, okay, I've walked to and fro, and there is peace on the earth. So it's the same order. The red horse is going to find peace, but he's going to take peace from the earth. So the Lord sends them. He finds, the red horse finds peace on the earth, and he's going to take it. So it's just interesting. You get an illusion here that these horses, these angelic beings of some kind, these entities are already there walking around the earth waiting for Jesus to give them command. Okay, there's a lot of impending wars prophetically described in the Bible. And you can find what we're going to do next week. I'm going to give you the homework in a second, but what we're going to do is go through a list of wars that are yet to be fulfilled in the Bible, mainly from the Old Testament. And we're going to look at perhaps the order of those and prophetically what happens and where are we as the church as a result. But to me, the strangest war of all of them in the Bible is Psalms chapter 2. You know, it it really makes me laugh every time I read this psalm because I cannot think of anything more ambitious than knowingly going to war against the God of the universe. You know, I, I just can't not think of anything worse than saying, yep, I'm going to take up arms against that guy, the guy that breathed me into existence, the guy that spoke the universe in the beginning, the guy that holds it all together. I'm so sick of him ruling, I'm going to try to go to war against him. And so when you read Psalms 2, it turns out it is a dialogue of the Trinity. 
you are getting an, to sit at the table with the Trinity and listen to the three of them have a conversation about this. And when you look at the structure of it, it's only 12 verses. The back and the, the first few verses and the last few verses are the Holy Spirit. Then you go inside and it's the Father. And then you go to the middle and it's the Son. And so you have this, even a structure in the way the dialogue is. But it opens up the first four verses. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's the Father, and against his anointed. So who's his anointed? It's Jesus, right? So this is the Holy Spirit saying, the Lord, all the kings of the earth are sitting around together deciding, hey, we're going to take counsel against the Lord and his chosen one, Jesus, our king. Okay, and then, then the Holy Spirit quotes what the kings are saying. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let us break off of their authority. So they've put their bands around us. They have put their cords on us, this this God of the universe, let us break them and get away. And then the Holy Spirit says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. In other words, the Father cannot believe the people of the earth want to do this. You know, he's just awestruck. Okay, so then the Father says, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath. He's speaking of Jesus. So this is the Father speaking. Then shall he, as in Jesus, Speak unto them, the people that want to break the cords, in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. See, that's exactly what Jesus does when he shows up in Revelation 19. He speaks. There is no battle of Armageddon. There is a staging ground at Megiddo. Mount Har-Megeddon just means Mount Megiddo in Hebrew. So they gather. It's basically a staging place where all the kings of the earth will gather to ch- around Jerusalem and try to take it down once and for all. In other words, we have to wipe out the believing remnant, the Jews, because Hosea 5.15 has a prerequisite condition to Jesus showing up, which is that the Jews have to petition him to return. They have to acknowledge their offense that they missed it when he rode in on the donkey and cry out for redemption and for him to come back. That's the last verse of Hosea 5, if you want to read that. But that's the prerequisite where Jesus says, I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. In their affliction, they will seek me with much fervor or earnestly. And so if you've ever wondered why is the world against Israel, that's why. You know, they are one-tenth the size of the state of Oklahoma. They have no natural resources they really aren't a huge economy, but yet the entire world wants to wipe them off. And here's God laughing about it. So he shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Verse 6, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So who is the father's king? It's Jesus, right? I've set my king on that hill. I mean, in other words, it's done. They will try to take that hill, that mountain. It's not going to work because God has already set his king upon that hill. And here's the son. Here's Jesus. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, as in the father said to me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. 
Okay, so that's what the Father has said to the Son. The Son's quoting the Father. And then verse 8, here's God speaking again. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. In other words, Jesus, if you just ask, I will give it all to you. Okay, this was the temptation that Satan had in Luke. When he tempted Jesus, he was telling him, hey, I have all the kingdoms of the earth right now. If you will just bow down to me, don't go to the cross, I'll just give it to you. That was the temptation. And it's not a temptation unless Satan really has it, which he does right now. But, but at some point, God is going to take it back through this, and that's what we're unlocking seal by seal. Okay, the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Remember, we looked at this all through at the beginning of Revelation. That idiom shows up a lot, that Jesus will rule the nations and break them with a rod of iron. With a rod of iron. It's just it's fascinating. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So that's the Father. Then the Holy Spirit closes it out as a warning to these kings. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord, as in the Father, with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So the Holy Spirit, it closes, that whole dialogue with the Trinity closes with a call from the Spirit to the world which is who, right, the comforter is ushering, trying to gather a bride right now. He's, he's warning this, the world, kiss the son, bow to the son, give your life to the son, lest he be angry. Okay, so this is the homework piece. For next week, we're, gonna, we're going to break down these wars in the Old Testament that are yet future and go through these in probably how they will unfold. This is total speculation on my part, which is why at the top there's our men's Bible study verse, Acts 17, 11, right? Your goal for the next week is to go home and read these verses and see, number one, did we miss one? There's probably others in the Old Testament that we missed. Number two, don't take my word that this is yet to be fulfilled. Search the scriptures daily for yourself and make sure that you learn on your own that this is truth, right? Go and find it. Go and search it. Invoke 1 John 2.27, right? My favorite verse that I, I, Ryan's probably so sick of me saying it by now that uh, he's probably cringes every time it comes out of my mouth, but that's the verse. Let the anointing of the Holy Spirit that you have teach you everything, and then search the scriptures and prove that this be so. So there's a lot of wars that are yet future in the Bible, and I think it's important to go through these next week because of the geopolitical stage that's being set in the Middle East. And I want you all to understand that unless you're paying attention to what's going on with the Jerusalem Post and Israel with news over there, then you're missing a big part of what it means to be a student of the Bible today. Because the Lord his entire focus is on that area in the end times. And there's a lot of things being set right now that are setting the stage for all of this to start to happen. And the question that you should challenge yourself with is, where are we as the church when this starts to unfold? Where are we? We know that after the rapture, there has to be some kind of gap of time 
before the Antichrist can rise to power. The church has to be gone for him to be revealed. For him to be revealed, he's got to rise to power. So it could be three months, it could be three days, it could be three years, it could be 30 years. You know, we don't know, but there is a gap of time that a lot of bad stuff are going to start to unfold on the earth to give way for this guy to rise to power and usher in a global peace, right? To have a solution, the answer man the world's looking for. So in Jeremiah 49, you've got Elam, the destruction of Elam. Uh, The other key that you need to know is most of the areas in the Old Testament, when they give a name, it's the original name of the area. We, you know, you can't find Elam necessarily on a map. You have to figure out in ancient times, where was it, which means what is it today? You know, for example, Persia in ancient, in the Old Testament is modern day Iran. Okay, just for example. Elam, in Iran, there's a mountain range in the southwest corner, and Elam was the region between that mountain range and the sea. And so that, it's Iran today, but it's a specific part of Iran. And there happens to be a nuclear reactor there in that area. Jeremiah 49 describes that, the destruction of Elam. Isaiah 17 describes the destruction of Damascus, which that's one of the cities that has not changed names in modern times. It's, many consider it the oldest inhabited city on earth is Damascus, and a lot of people view it that way. A guy that I work with is from Damascus, and so I learned a lot from him during the Syrian civil war back in 2013 through 16, kind of that time frame of what's really going on over there. But in Isaiah 17, Damascus gets destroyed. Israel takes a hit as a result. You've got the Arab-Israeli conflict in Psalm 83 where all the nations that border Israel try to wipe it off the map. In Zechariah 12, during that conflict, Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling. In Zechariah 12, a few more verses, the governors of Judah really rise up during that time, and Jerusalem is inhabited in her own place during that war. Ezekiel 37, then Israel becomes an exceedingly great army. In Obadiah 1, the house of Esau, remember we talked about Esau a little bit ago, shall not survive. That's the Palestinians, what we call generically the Palestinians today. Okay, so that that house of Esau, the Palestinians don't survive, according to Obadiah. In Jeremiah 49, Jordan surrenders Ammon to Israel. That's uh, Rabbah is the ancient name for Ammon. In Zephaniah 2, after Ammon's taken, then Israel takes over the rest of Jordan. And then Ezekiel 38 and 39 is this Russian-led coalition between Russia and Turkey and Iran, where they come to try to wipe Israel out because Israel has great wealth at this point. They don't fit that right now. So there's got to be a lot of things in place that makes them fit that characteristic. So I think it's critical as students of the Bible for us to go through this in detail. And so next week we're going to break down each one of these and show what's happening in the world today to set the stage for this. And when you just think about it logically, how could it unfold? You know, what would happen that would then lead to this? So it's going to be, a, it's going to be an exciting message next week. We'll go through a lot of headlines and a lot of, a lot of uh, scriptures on what's unfolding in our news today. So in Jeremiah 49, when God puts his throne in Elam, okay, the first one I mentioned, Jesus is going to set his throne in Elam at some point in Iran, 
which is crazy when you think about it because he is not welcomed there today by the leadership, right? But in the millennium, apparently across the border, he's going to set a throne. Iranian Christians are so excited about that. And, and what I want you to realize is if you look up in Iran, it's the leadership that is against Christ. It's not the people. There's a lot, there are, yes, indeed, a lot of Muslims there, but they have the highest Christianity conversion rate of anywhere on planet Earth right now is in Iran. And those are our brothers and sisters that literally are gathering to fight for their life, for the freedom to come somewhere like this and open the word of God. And so if you think about it, pray for Iran. Uh, pray for the salvation of many people over there. Okay, you can look up, there's testimonies all over. God is speaking to them in dreams. And it's interesting because when you go back to Daniel, he was a dream interpreter. He was of the Magi from Persia, okay, Persia being Iran. God is speaking to them in the same way he did the same people all the way back in Daniel. So it's just interesting that he, he continues to do that. But they are being converted by the millions. And Mason and I went to a Bible conference back in 2019 where we got to hear some really cool testimonies of Iranians coming to know the Lord. And one of my favorites I'll just share with you real quick. This, this guy over there, he comes into the homes at night through satellites so that the Iranian government can't track him. And he has a show, a gospel show, that he preaches the word of God every single night. And there's a mom and a daughter. Uh, suicides in the Muslim culture are through the roof. A lot of people commit suicide that go down the road of that religion, and they think they're doing a glorifying thing, right? Well, he, he's preaching the gospel. There's a mom and a daughter listening. The mom is, has not been able to walk in years, in years, and they're watching this show on the television, the mom is, and the daughter gets very upset, right? Comes in and sees the mom listening to the Bible, tries to shut it off, and the mom's like, no, listen. Well, the but what this guy does, he talks a lot about suicide. And he tells them, hey, if you are considering suicide, then please call this number. He's got a hotline you can call. Well, the daughter calls, right? The mom and the daughter call and start talking to him. And they were actually getting ready to take their life as a couple, as a mom and a daughter, to serve Allah because she thought she couldn't serve him anymore, uh, paralyzed in this bed. Well, the guy does something really bold on the other end of the phone. He just says, okay, give, give the Lord 24 hours to do something miraculous in your life. And if he doesn't, then go ahead and do it. Take your own life. Give, give Jesus 24 hours. And he prayed with them. Well, they go to sleep. The next morning, the mom can walk for the first time in decades. She's out of bed walking around the apartment, and she has accepted the Lord and just praising his name. Well, the daughter then accepts the Lord out of that, and they become a, a spearhead for the gospel in Iran. And they've come over to the United States. They've given testimonies before. And the church, a lot of churches here have tried to get them to stay here because they are wanted criminals in Iran, right? Their lives are on the line, and they refuse to. And frankly, they just said, look, you guys have it too easy here. We don't want to be here. <laughs> we want to serve the Lord in a way where we are passionately and fervently running after him, and we feel a call there. So it's interesting. If you're interested in finding out more about that kind of stuff, just look up the conversion rate in Iran. Look up testimonies online. Look what these people are doing over there because God is calling out a bride for himself 
before these wars start to happen, before things really get bad, and he's going to call people home. So, interesting. Uh, In that time, Zechariah 14.3 is a reminder that the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So we want to make sure that we are in Christ before he goes forward to fight in the day of battle because that's exactly what he's doing before this starts to unfold. He's going to bring us home. Okay, we need to be about the Lord's business. As we're going through Revelation, I just want, I'm probably going to use this slide a lot to close out the messages because it's deep, it's heavy. There's a lot of things we're going to get into that you maybe have never studied before. And you might leave asking the question, well, what do I do with this? And the, the answer is really simple. We're to be about the Lord's business before we go home. And he put the words in Revelation as a blessing for us to study. It's the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing upon those who read and, and hear the words of the prophecy. So what are we to do? We're to, in Luke 19, and he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. In other words, be about your business. Don't let this stuff, don't let the prophecies in Revelation scare you into fear. Don't let them be fearful. Don't let them paralyze you in your life. What you need to do is be sensitive to, Lord, you've given us this. We're seeing the stage setting of the world falling into place for this to unfold, which must mean we're getting closer to going home. So it should be exciting. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, comfort one another with these words. In Titus 3, it's our blessed hope to go home with the Lord. So you should realize that time is getting short and we're to be about his business. And when these things begin to come to pass, look up, lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. You know, it's time for a new city to build. Nehemiah 4, those that built the wall had a mind to work and they worked with their sword girded by their side. So they were, in, in essence, what God is calling us to do is to build up the wall, which is the strength of the word of God, And how do we do that? With our sword guarded by our side, which is the word, and we're building disciples and bringing people into the bridegroom's family. So we need to be about his business. If you don't know Jesus and you're in this room, it's really simple. If you're watching online, you don't know the Lord, it's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's simple. It's straightforward. It doesn't take anything on your part except submission. God does not call you to do anything to earn your salvation. He paid for it all on a cross in Judea almost 2,000 years ago. And that payment was to create a way for you to have fellowship with him once and for all in the throne room of the universe. That's your way there. That's your way home. You know, there is no other way. Jesus said anyone else that comes to the Father is any other way is a thief and a robber. There's no way. There's only one way, and that's through him. And once you submit to him, then he will start to shape and mold you in your life, and you will be overjoyed with, wow, this burden I was carrying around, he's meant to carry it. I can lay it at his feet. So you can make sure you've got that ticket home before wars consume the earth. He wants to welcome you to your forever place. Isaiah 118, this is the verse. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. He alone has the power to change that. 
to change that red. He warred on your behalf to make it white as snow. And you can't reason together unless you walk in agreement with him. According to Amos, you have to walk in agreement. Then you can reason together and get it into a deeper and deeper and deeper relationship with the Lord. So with that, we'll close in prayer. If you've got questions about salvation, if you're watching online, you've got questions. If you need anything, please reach out to us. There's our email address. Come find us after the service. If you need something, we'll pray, and then we're going to close the live feed and do communion together as a group. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. We thank you for the promises in Revelation. We thank you for this book that you have held together for us in this day and time. Lord, it is never it's never been as important as it is today to understand our place and our position in Christ. Thank you for warring on our behalf. I pray a special blessing upon everyone that's watching this online, everyone here in this room tonight, as, this afternoon as we leave this place. Continue to bless our children's ministry and to bring the right people in at the right time to volunteer and to pour into our children. Thank you, God, for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.